So this is kind of the kind of re emotions or reactions of this man. And then um, really chapter one that was covered last week kind of talks about um, this, uh, this queen, Vashti, um, Xerxes' queen, and some of the um, dynamics around her um, not, no longer being queen. Uh, if you remember, uh, Xerxes has been throwing this party for six months, and um, many historians think that this was in preparation, because right after this, he goes to war with Greece, that this was kind of a party preparation for that military uh, endeavor. So he's, they've been partying for six months. The last week of this party, he throws a feast for the whole kingdom. In that process, he uh, asks, requests, or actually um, commands, um, the, the verbiage is summoned, so it's a king's summons, summons Vashti to uh, appear before his court. Um, there's some implication there that he wanted to to parade her or show her off. She refuses. He, he kind of has this knee-jerk response um, and issues this decree about how women are to respect men across this whole kingdom. So that's kind of that's kind of where chapter two picks up here. We're going to read this whole chapter, so um, don't lose your attention here as we read through this. Esther chapter two and verse one says, after these things, when the wrath of King Xerxes was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the providences of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of Hagi, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them. And let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti, and the thing please the king, and he did so. Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with Jeconah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace, to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house, to the custody of Haggai, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her her things for purification, with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens, 
which were meet to be given her, out of the king's house, and he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should come of her. And when every maid's turn was come to go into King Ahasuerus, after that she had been 12 months according to the manner of the women, so were the days of their purification accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odors and with other things for the purifying of the women. Then thus came every maiden unto the king, whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. In the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned unto the second house of the women to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her that she were called by name. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king, she required nothing but what king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of them, in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So Esther was taken unto king Ahasuerus, into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month Tabith in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast, and he made a release to the providences and gave gifts according to the state of the king. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people, as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, Two of the king's chamberlains, Bigeth, Bigthin, and Teresh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out, therefore they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. All right, a lot to read there. If you want to make fun of my pronunciation of names, you can come up here and publicly speak. Um, but what, what we're going to do here is we're just going to walk through this chapter and make some general comments, um, some general commentary about a couple verses. Then... We're going to look at Esther, who's really the hero or the main character of this story, talk about some of her background. Um, then we're going to make some application about 
the gifts that God's given us, how we should um, utilize those to develop godly character. Um, and then as we wrap up, we're going to briefly touch on this little commentary of a story at the end of the chapter, which, which at first glance kind of seems um, out of place, but um, actually has implications. Um, so to start with, there in verse 1, it says, after these things. And really, um, in the past when I've read the book of, Ex of Esther, haven't really um, thought about uh, the timeline between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, the timeline between chapter 1 and chapter 2 seems to follow this war that uh, Ahasuerus and the Medo-Persian, being the ruler of Medo-Persian Empire, had with, against Greece. Um, we, this, this doesn't uh, initially seem uh, apparent, but when we think about the timeline and we know history, if you look back in chapter 1 and verse 3, we see that the timeline tells us here, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all princes and his servants. So we see here, in chapter 1, the context is third year of, of King Ahasuerus' reign. And then, here in chapter 2, if you look in verse 16, it tells us, So Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month Tabith, in the seventh year of his reign. So now we, we find that at the time when Esther is entering into the king, we're in the seventh year of his reign. History tells us that during that time span, there was this conquest that Ahasuerus had to go and conquer um, Greece. That, was, um, that didn't end well for him. That, he didn't end up achieving what he set out to achieve. Um, one commentary says, in his great campaign against Greece from 481 to 479 BC, with an army of probably 200,000 men and a navy of many hundreds of ships, Xerxes desperately sought to avenge the humiliating defeat suffered by his father Darius. And so Darius had in some way attempted this before, had been defeated. Um, Xerxes wants to kind of revenge that, wants to attempt it himself. Um, and it didn't end well for him either. At the Battle of Marathon, um, well, no, Darius' father had been defeated at this battle called Marathon. But in spite of remarkably skillful planning and strategy, his army was nearly blocked by Spartans at the Pass of Thermopylae. So his foot soldiers met resistance with the Spartans. And um, you can study the Spartans. They, those guys were trained fighters. I recently saw a quote that said that war was a, a downtime for the Spartans because their training was so intense. Um, and so he met defeat there with his ground soldiers. Um, soon after that, he had a navy. His navy um, was smashed before his very eyes at a place called Salamis, and that was west of Athens. Um, and so this great planning 
and six months of maybe even partying, ramping up to go to war hadn't ended well for him. So that's the context between chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's back from that. He's um, defeated. In fact, um, some historians say that to take his mind off of it, he was giving rewards to anybody in his kingdom who could come up with new inventions of pleasure or inventions of distraction because um, he was in the blues some, so to speak, uh, because of his uh, lost conquest. Um, so that's the context here in ver- where in verse 1 it says, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. So, um, so finally he's um, pausing and he's remembering back to his queen and some think here that maybe even was doing so with a little bit of regret um, because of uh, how he appreciated her or desired her. And so we see here um, what his advisors immediately do. In verse 2, Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. Now, um, these guys may have had ulterior motives here because they're the ones that advised him, put this decree out, this is how you should deal with, with your queen, you should make an example across the whole kingdom of her, and now his mind is fondly turning back to her if he were to somehow um, work the law to bring her back as queen and she was to win favor with him, what implications would that have for these advisors that advised all that? Um, Some of that we may be surmising some, but that seems to be a little bit of context there. And so they quickly say, no, what we need to do is we need to find you a new queen. We got to get this man's mind off of Queen Vashti. We got to find a new queen. So that's kind of the, the background of this. Um, moving on to verse 3, we see here this man that is the keeper of the women. Verse 3 tells us, And let the king appoint officers in all the providences of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan in the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of Hagi, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them. Um, the king, as was traditional in, in um, not right, but was traditional in, um, in these kingdoms, very likely had a harem of women that lived in this location that's called the House of Women. This man, Hagi, uh, we see it spelled H-E-G-E in verse 3, and then in verse 8, it's mentioned again, spelled a little different. Um, this was li- likely the same man, and he was responsible for the overseeing for the keeping of women. History tells us um, that typically these keepers were eunuchs, and they were in charge over um, the the House of Women, especially 
over the virgins, and you would, could see the king's interest in somebody in that position being a eunuch. Um, and so that's kind of the background of this keeper of women. Uh, as we move on, we kind of see a glimpse of Esther's, um, some of Esther's background. Um, she is brought up by her uncle Mordecai. Verse 7 tells us, and he brought up Hadassah, that's her Jewish name, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. And so she has lost her own parents. Her uncle has brought her in and really has raised her. Um, and it tells us here that really raised her as his own daughter. And so she very much viewed him as a father figure, um, and he was very instrumental in taking this orphan niece of his, bringing her in and raising her. In verse 9, we get some background of um, the impression that Esther made on um, the people that she was around. Verse 9 tells us, And the maiden pleased him, meaning Haggai, the keeper of the women, and the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her her things for purification, which such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens, which were meet to be given her, out of the king's house, and he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. So she um, found favor with this Haggai, the keeper of the women, and he um, gives her special attention, and when I mean special attention, not like uh, in a bad way, but, help, but um, puts her in prime quarters, gives her seven maidens to help care for her um, because he sees something promising in her. And again, this is the man that has a vested interest in um, prepping for the new, the new queen. And um, she has made an impression upon him. And he, he seems to favor her in, uh, in that process. We see an interesting note in verse 10 that Mordecai gives Esther um, instructions or advice to not reveal her nationality, to not reveal her race. Um, very likely in the kingdom there was some prejudice towards um, the Jewish people. These were people... If you think about it, people that have, have been brought out of captivity. So these are people that have been brought into your country because they've been conquered. And very likely there was some hierarchy type attitude still towards the Jews. These were people that now had the opportunity to leave um, and had not yet. And so very likely some prejudice type feelings in that society still over over Jews and um, and even across the world today, even still some of that um, prejudice reigns around the Jewish people. 
In verse 12, we see this commentary kind of about this purification process. Now when every maid, now when every maid's turn was come to go into the king Ahasuerus, after that she had been 12 months, according to the manner of women, for so were the days of their purification accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with sweet odors, and with other things for the purifying of the women. There's nothing, um, there's nothing about Jewish law or biblical, really, about this purification process. This was more of a um, Medo-Persian cultural thing, um, and plus, also likely had to do with prepping these people to go in to the king, um, and so they were putting a lot of attention towards how they would prepare and prep these women for that. Um, talking about using different oils of myrrh here, very likely there was um, some diet control and all of this, and really um, there's nothing biblical or symbolical about this 12 months other than really kind of the takeaway that they spent 12 months really putting intense energy into prepping these women to go before the king um, for the selection of the new queen. Um, the other thing that's interesting here <coughs> um, is there seems to kind of be three houses or three locations where, um, where these women, where different women are kept. We have the house of the queen. That's kind of um, spoken about even in chapter one where Vashti had her own location. Um, we have the house of the virgins, which is where um, Esther seemed to be kept. And then um, in verse 14, that after these women have gone into the king, um, then they go to the custody of this, in verse 14, um, in the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned unto the second house of the women, to the custody of Shagaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept, which kept the concubines. So it seems to be like after they've gone into the king, then there's this housing, this location for the concubines, and really them putting probably some emphasis on um, where these virgins dwelt and then where these concubines dwelt. You can put the picture together of what was going on when these different women were brought to the king for selection of queen. Um, there was very, um, I mean, if you think, if you stop and think about the process, uh, really a very sensual, uh, wicked process where these women were being take to, taken into the king to see if they pleased him. And then after that, they were no longer virgins and they went to the house of the concubines. That's the, that's the reality, that's the setting of what was going on here. And if you even pause to think about Queen Esther um, being prepped to go through that process and um, the, just the reliance on the Lord to have the grace to keep the right perspective through a process like that. And even realizing that probably to, um, 
to resist that process or to refuse to go through that process would mean your own life. Um, in verse 17, uh, we see that Esther is, is um, well, well, just a l- another little side note here. Um, once this has happened, kind of in that culture, these concubines were viewed as wives, but there was wives, plural, and then there was the queen who was like the number one wife, and that's kind of culturally how they viewed this. And we see that in verse 17, and the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So essentially Esther is made the number one wife, if you want to categorize it that way. Then, um, in the midst of kind of all this, all this dialogue, there's this sh- short little story, verses 21 through 23, where Mordecai, who sits in the king's gate, who seems to be employed some, in some way by the kingdom, overhears these disgruntled um, servants who kept the door, overhears their planning to really assassinate, it seems, to assassinate the king. He passes that information up to Esther. Esther passes it all along. The authorities do some investigation. They find it to be true, and this um, assassination is squelched. And we find that at the end of chapter 2, which, as the story goes on, uh, leads to, um, to a key piece in this story. So that's kind of just some, uh, some broad commentary on this chapter. We're going to um, just comment a little more on the person of Esther. Um, as we saw there in verse 7, um, the point here is Esther, the hero of this story, was an orphan. And we see the context of that. She's lost her father and her mother. Her uncle Mordecai has brought her in. And what we see here and what we can see throughout Scripture is that God has special concern for the fatherless and the seeing that they're taken care of, and so should we. In, um, over in the book of Exodus, I want you to turn over there, Exodus chapter 22. We get a glimpse of how God views the fatherless. Really short verse here, but Exodus 22 and verse 22 tells us, Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Um, you know, uh, we'll look at the New Testament here, but God, um, fatherless are a reality in the world we live in, whether that's because you have physically lost your father, whether that's because um, in the world we live in, some fathers are absent, 
um, and have chosen to be absent in the process of caring for and raising their children. And really, God placed the responsibility to help in that process um, in the Old Testament on the, on the children of Israel and in the New Testament on the church. And um, God does care how we view and how we take care of uh, the widows and the fatherless. Deuteronomy, there's further explanation of this over in Deuteronomy chapter 24. <laughs> that um, here in Deuteronomy 24, we see this principle that um, that we're to make provisions to help care or help for the means of survival of the widow and the fatherless. Here in Deuteronomy 24, 17, it says, Thou shalt not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. But thou shalt remember, so he's, he's saying here, you, you better be careful how you do business in trying to get monetary gain or, um, or leverage the fatherless or the widow. He says here, but thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt. He says, you remember that once you were disadvantaged, that once you uh, were under slavery in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee thence. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. When thou cuttest down thine harvest in thy field, and hast forgot a sheaf in the field, thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. That the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the works of thine hands. When thou beatest thine olive tree, thou shalt not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. And so God, um, God uh, instituted a way, particularly with the nation of Israel, that the widow and the fatherless could have a means of being taken care of. Um, and we see some of that principle carried over even into the New Testament. If you remember, we're not going to turn there, but if you remember even need for the first deacons, it was because the widows were being neglected. Um, and we, um, from time to time, we may need to check our own prejudices, and I, I'm not saying this, this is in, in effect here, but we may need to check our own prejudices where sometimes um, even in churches, by God's grace, as people have been saved and as lives have been changed, we may have single mothers, we may have children that, whose fathers are absent in the process, and sometimes we can have an attitude of a stigma towards that, when in reality, as God has changed lives, 
uh, it really falls on the church to play a part in seeing to the well-being and the upbringing and the physical needs of those. Um, and really, um, that's the reason the very first deacons were, um, were initiated in the church was to take care of those needs. Um, I think there's a verse over here in James I want to read. Let me just turn over there real quick. Yeah, in James 1.27, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it. It says here, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. So, you know, um, we've kind of been talking about cultural Christianity recently, right? And um, how we can begin to fall into a system of this is what the good Christian does, whether it's church attendance, whether it's giving of my tithe, and, um, and the kind of the do's of what a good Christian is, when in reality, um, God wants the Christian life to be surrender day by day, he wants to be how, how I view the everyday things of life, not just my outward actions. And he says here in James, pure religion and undefiled, before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Um, that pure religion, he's saying, James is saying here, is seeing to and taking care of the needs of others, particularly in this context, the needs of the widow and the fatherless, and not just checking the boxes that I'm a good Christian because I show up to church on time, and I'm a good Christian because I pay my tithe, and I'm a good Christian because I serve in these ministries, but really the day-to-day -day unspottedness from the world and concern for others. God had concern for the orphans, and he saw to it that this girl, Esther, um, was well taken care of, and um, Mordecai, her uncle, being used of God to help bring this person up. Um, and it does, um, it does matter in the New Testament era how we view uh, the fatherless and the widow or those that have an absent father in the process and what part we play in, um, in seeing to it that their needs are met, both physically and, of course, in the spiritual sense. Um, we, we see this throughout Scripture, that the, um, the Bible account is that God had some very special places for children um, that were um, orphans or that were taken out of their home. If you remember back to Moses, Moses was taken from his parents, really um, in an effort to save his life, um, but through that process became one of God's greatest servants. Joseph, as a young man, was rejected by his brothers and taken from his father, yet used greatly by God. Think about the man Samuel, given up by his parents to serve in the house of God, raised for a lot of his life by the, um, the priest himself, and the way that God used Samuel in, um, 
the nation of Israel. And then here in Esther, how God's going to use this little orphan girl um, to really preserve a whole nation. Esther, the hero of this story, and she was an orphan girl. This next thing we're going to kind of look at is that God gives us different gifts or different talents or different physical abilities. In this case, Esther with her physical appearance. But God gives us that, that through that we can be more accountable to developing godly character. If you see in verse 7, it tells us, in the midst of kind of giving the commentary of, of the loss of her father and mother, it tells us, and the maid was fair and beautiful. Um, she was born here with some natural beauty. But Esther did not let or allow this natural beauty to go to her head. Um, it seems that everyone that Esther came in contact with um, grew to like her. Um, and, um, you know, natural beauty, if not paired with the right spirit, can, can in time be revolting. But it seems that Esther had the right spirit, the right humility, to go with what God had given her in her beauty. In verse 9, it tells us here, and the maiden pleased him, talking about the keeper of the women, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her her things for purification. So he kind of speedily kind of set her in the front of the line, so to speak, because she pleased him, and not just, it seems here, not just by her physical appearance, but by her demeanor, by her, her attitude, by her humility. Um, in verse 15, um, um, at the end of verse 15, it's talking about her time to go into the king. And even when it's her time to go into the king, she has enough humility to request of Haggai what exactly she should take in. It, it, for some reason, the scripture points out here that um, these women take with them what they wanted into this night with the king, and instead of her choosing all that, she, um, in her humility, requests nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, um, suggests. And then at the end of verse 15, it says, And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. And so again, the people that she's around, that she's exposed to, she seems to gain favor with them, Likely not just because of her physical appearance, but because of her, how she, because of her, um, her spirit, because of her humility, because of her um, demeanor. Um, and then, of course, we see in verse 17 that the king liked her. The application. How much time do I have here? Oh. The application here is that God gives us different natural abilities. God may gift us with different talents. Um, and we need to be careful 
But the talents and the abilities that God gifts us with create uh, that we are humble about that and then through that humility can use those talents uh, for God versus um, kind of having this attitude of, uh, of, of pride, of like, hey, look at the talents I have. Like, look, 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 who, look who I am. The how, the what we've been gifted, how do we view that? Do we view that as being a self-made person? Or do we view that as God has given me this natural ability or this talent to be used and to glorify God through it? Um, your special gifts from God demands that you develop all areas of yourself. And so, um, not only did she have this natural beauty, um, but she didn't allow it to go to her head to create pride, but she um, desired to use, to be used of God through that. And then, um, well, actually, um, go over to Isaiah 57. Many of you will be familiar with this, but as we wrap this point up on using your God-given talents. Isaiah 57 and verse 15 tells us here, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. So I want you to think here, you know, Esther's about to go into the king the most powerful entity really kind of in the then-known world and all the majesty and beauty and, um, and authority that he had here. And now take that and transition here in Isaiah that the person that is being spoken about here is God, the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place with him. So he's going to give commentary here on who God dwells with. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. The most uh, powerful, the most um, high and lofty one that you could ever enter into. Who, who, do, who is it that he dwells with? He says here that I dwell with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Um, does it I'm kind of losing my, how to describe this, but um, the talents that God gives us or anything that we've made up um, that can be used of God and the most important person who we could ever dwell with, God himself, says that who he likes to dwell with is the person of a contrite and humble heart. And it seems that Esther had that contrite and humble heart that despite these hard circumstances, 
that God could use her, that we would all today say that we would want to dwell with God, but who is it that God really dwells with? Well, he dwells with the one who is of a contrite and humble heart. And then as we wrap up, I think I'm just about out of time here, as we wrap this up, we see kind of the unseen hand of God moving among his people here in this little commentary, the last three verses. Um, what, what a, you know, on the surface it kind of seems like, what a coincidence that Mordecai would overhear this conversation. Um, but the reality is, is it's not a coincidence that the hand of God, which isn't even, God isn't even mentioned, uh, the word God or reference to God isn't even mentioned in the whole book of Esther, and yet through every chapter you see him weaving the, the, the preservation of his people. Uh, it wasn't a coincidence that Mordecai was in this right place at this right time to hear, um, to hear of this, this uprising, this um, assassination attempt against the king. Um, and it, it seems here, we're reading some of this, but it seems here that he brings this forward, that Esther breaks it forward, that they do an investigation, that they find out that this is true, these men are dealt with, and then the matter's closed. And if you could think about Mordecai sitting in the king's gate, like, hello, I, I, I saved the king's life. Hello, like, anybody, anybody pay attention that I, that I um, thwarted this assassination? It doesn't seem like there's any recognition down to Mordecai at this point in time that, um, for him bringing this forward, other than that it was written in the chronicles of the kings that this act was recorded. Um, the, this, the, um, the report of this assassination seems to be overlooked when uh, a time of recognition or, or reward came. There was, there was at this point in time, doesn't seem to be any recognition that Mordecai was the one that helped save the king. And, and one just quick application here is, um, could it be from time to time in life that the Lord allows us to experience something in our life that there doesn't seem to be any recognition for or any closure for or any, um, any yeah, really any recognition where I'm left thinking, well, what, what's God doing here so that behind the scenes God is working to, to, uh, um, to work out something greater that will occur at a later date. And oftentimes um, I can be very short-sighted in the events of life that I'm experiencing or going through where, um, what's God doing? Where's God at? Like, what's going on here? And there's no recognition or there's no outward acknowledgement of something. But could it be that in those instances, God is working behind the scenes to work something greater in the future? And, and that comes with having just to trust that his ways are higher than our ways 
in his thoughts than our thoughts, and that he is in control. All right, that's um, an explanation of chapter two. Um, like I said, we're gonna, we're gonna, there's going to be two weeks where other speakers are up here, um, and then we'll come back and we'll move into chapter three and four and really look at how God um, takes this young lady, Esther, to really save the whole nation of Israel.